Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. Hub24 is on a mission to empower advisors to deliver better financial futures for their clients. They're dedicated to customer service excellence and delivering innovative product solutions that create value for advisors and their clients. These are just some of the reasons why advisors rate them number one for overall satisfaction and why their managed portfolio solution has been rated best in market five years running. Hub24 believes nothing happens in isolation. So they're working together with advisors, licensees, and industry leaders to leverage their data and technology expertise to help solve key challenges in the delivery of financial advice so more Australians can access cost-effective advice. Welcome back to the XY Advisor podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today I'm joined by returning guest, Michael Miller. Welcome. Hi, Fraser. Thanks for uh, coming back. Now, it's been 12 months since you're almost 12 months since you were on the podcast. Uh, it, uh, I guess uh, well, we're about to find out what sort of changed and, and, and from there on looking forward, I guess. But uh, how have you been? I've uh, been well. We're in lockdown here in Canberra, but uh, much shorter than some of the other sort of cities and states. So I uh, can't complain about that. Yep, absolutely. Now, uh, you're on episode 100, uh, sorry, 206, uh, which came out in October 2020. So if anybody is um, is thinking about listening back to that episode, uh, go go hunting for it in that particular space. Now, tell us about – now, there's a few things I wanted to talk to you today about. Uh, one of those things is you've been writing a lot of papers on um, some of the determinations that are, are coming out of the um, Australian Financial Complaints Authority or AFCA. Uh, and we want to get into that a little bit later. But before we do that, I wanted to jump back in time. Uh, you're obviously a uh, planner in Canberra. Um, you've been uh, working for a number of years. You're you're a licensed planner. You've you've been operating your own practice. Um, uh, last last time we had you on the podcast, you'd recently moved to your licensee, but uh, obviously you've sort of settled in there now. Um, but I want to go back a bit further. Let's go back to your background, as in. Uh, I really want you to sort of talk to talk to us about your the story that you tell about your nan. Yeah, no, I can certainly do that. Uh, my nan, so my my dad's uh, mum, uh, she she uh, her husband, so my sort of grandfather passed away quite young, so she was very involved in sort of managing the finances and worked as a bookkeeper and did some investing herself. Um, and you know, like many people, uh, you know, nan. Uh, would send a, every birthday you know, the card and, and there was a, you know, a little bit of a sort of cash gift or a, a check in there, um, which is all sort of fairly standard and you know, may, maybe a sort of a, a five, 10 or a $20 note sort of um, back in those days. But one of the stories that I sort of tell, it was for my 21st birthday, a uh, card came, there was a check in it and I, I can't remember the the actual amount, but it was something like it was like $52.86. It was a really, you know, strange number. And you just thought, what on earth is going on there? Like, what, why that amount? Um, and it turns out that um, what Nan had been doing is she gave an amount to the first grandchild that turned 21. Uh, and to uh, be completely fair with everybody, she had been indexing that amount to inflation um, as each sort of grandchild hit uh, 21 along the way. So that's that's why I had this uh, yeah, very, very strange amount. Yeah, that's a magical moment in your life, right, where you start working out that, oh, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a real thing. It's important. It actually works that way uh, and, and a pretty good lesson from your nan. Yeah, no, and I think it's, um, it's an interesting part of uh, you know, how we practice in that there's a very numbers component to it and I don't think – people get into this without having some interest in the numbers but there's a there's a people and a values component as well that probably uh, you know, people outside of the the sector don't think about or, or see as much but certainly you know, when we're in it we realize how much it actually drives everything that we do 
Yeah, uh, I agree. I think it, it definitely drives some of the stuff we do. Now, tell, tell me about, uh, now obviously her name was uh, Zoe. Uh, tell me about uh, the, the Zoe Miller Award. Um, yeah, so that, that's an award I set up uh, a number of years ago just with the, uh, the local university here, the University of Canberra. Um, yeah, that's, that's where I did my undergraduate degree. Uh, and, and it's uh, basically for their introduction to financial planning subject. Uh, an award for the highest achieving f- female uh, of $500. And the idea behind that, um, particularly the way the, the course was sort of structured at the university there is um, introduction to financial planning is um, the first subject in a sort of a minor or a major that specializes in financial planning. But you get a lot of people who go into sort of very broad sort of finance or commerce degrees and and you know, this was certainly for me, not necessarily specifically with that idea of, hey, I'm going to target financial planning, um, you know, when they first enroll. So I guess try to just make it a, a bit of an incentive to say, well, hey, try this introduction to financial planning subject as one of your electives. And, you know, hopefully that sort of grows on you as something that you want to pursue because there's, a, we are definitely severely underrepresented in terms of you know, women in financial planning. So just trying to, uh, I guess, do something locally towards that. Yeah, fantastic. This is an amazing initiative. Now, this is just an initiative that you've taken uh, to help promote the, you know, the new uh, financial advisors coming through, women in financial advice. Um, and, all you know, you just take this initiative where you provide a voucher or, or, or a, an incentive, an award of $500 for, you know, a top student. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's um, it's pretty easy to set up if if you contact your universities. Um, yeah, they're all quite happy to you know receive these donations and put them towards these sorts of awards or prizes. Yeah, I think it's an I think it's a fantastic initiative, and I would encourage other people to do the same thing. So so thank you for sharing that story. Um, now I remember just on that, I remember talking to Dr. Dr. Catherine Hunt from Griffith Griffith University who teaches the masters there. And she was saying that very similar thing that a lot of people go, come away, they find out about this financial advice thing. They, they really love it. And then they go away on their, uh, you know, end of the semester or, or spend some time with their family. They come back and they say, Oh no, I'm, I'm going to be an accountant. It's sort of a, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Where uh, there's a, you know, trying to create that interest in the financial planning um, as a profession rather than just sort of falling back on the, your standard accounting, you know, degree. Oh, yeah, look, I agree. And those pathways haven't been there for as long as they have for other professions. Um, you know, I, when I was studying my undergraduate degree, I, I went to the university and said, hey, well, does this thing get me what was at the time, you know, the PS146 qualification? And they sort of looked at me and said, what's that? Um, and that was a while ago now. Uh, and I think things have gotten much better. And I know the FPA in particular is doing some work uh, with a lot of universities towards that. But you know, if at that time I had have said, I want to be an accountant, uh, you know, there, there, there's a very clear pathway that uh, you know, yep. certainly wasn't there at the time, given that it's, it's not all that recent anymore uh, for financial yep. planning. Yeah, fantastic. So if anybody wants to check out that uh, Zoe Miller Award, there's a there's a website, uh, zoemiller.info. They can go and have a look a, bit, a little bit more about that. Uh, and I do encourage people to sort of, uh, you know, a, adopt the similar award at their local university. Uh, speaking of the work that you're doing for the FBA, you've done a fair bit of work on their, you know, conduct reviews and disciplinary board. Tell us about what you're doing there. Um, yes, yeah, so the, the Financial Planning Association, you know, sort of before, uh, you know, the face of your code of ethics, uh, you know, sort of came around. It has its own sort of code of professional practice and a lot of the, the practice standards that go uh, behind that. Um, and you know, if, if somebody has uh, you know done done the wrong thing, then uh, you know you, you can be held accountable to that code. Now, part of that is uh, you know the the people who I guess sit there and um, you know make decisions about whether there there has been a breach and any potential sanctions. Um, you know, are drawn from your your peers, so it's practicing financial planners uh, such as myself. Yeah, fantastic. So it's it's giving that overview of somebody who's uh, you know got their boots on the ground and and, and having conversations with clients. So it's not uh, it's not coming from a, a point of view that uh, you know oh, you wouldn't understand. You you don't you don't get, you don't get it. And that's probably 
uh, a little segue also into some of the work that you do, um, in, I guess, with you know, with AFCA themselves, where you do actually uh, perform a role where you, um, you, you, can, you can help them come to a determination or you can give them an oversight or, or a review of what it might be. I think you call it a, 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 um, a panel member, is that correct? Yeah, that, that's right. So um, part of AFCA's uh, sort of process uh, can be a determination made by an ombudsman. Now, there are a lot of stages that come before that uh, where, where there might be uh, sort of negotiations, mediations and conciliations between somebody who has a complaint and the AFCA term is a financial firm. Um, but, but if it isn't resolved at those stages, it can go to that determination uh, and as part of that, sometimes the ombudsman forms a panel and what that will have is uh, a practitioner member. So that's the category that I sit in uh, and a, a consumer representative um, just to, I guess, broaden the perspective uh, to somebody who is regularly sort of representing consumers' interests, but then also somebody who's practicing in financial planning. So might be able to speak to, you know, what typical practice or you know, what, what might ordinarily be expected to happen. Yeah, fantastic. That's, uh, I, I didn't know that uh, was part of the, the process, so that's fantastic. Um, speaking of the process, can, can you give us a quick overview of what the process is? If, if a consumer has a complaint and wants to make a complaint, what, what do they do and then how does the process work? Yeah, so, so certainly, and, and this sort of sits, I guess, a little bit pre-AFCA, is, is the, the first step is always going to you know, the, the financial firm. So that might be if you have a dispute about advice, it might be a financial planner, uh, but it may also be a dispute with a financial product provider and um, you know, is, is going to them and they're, they're all required to have a complaints process um, in place. Um, and, and that's always your first port of call. Um, if that hasn't resolved the, the issue to um, you know, that, that person's satisfaction, they can then go to um, you know, AFCA as an external dispute resolution body. Um, you know, and, and they then have, I, I guess, a, a bit of a process where um, you know, they're, they're trying to find a resolution between uh, the complainant and the, the, you know, the person or the institution responding to that um, with, I guess, as little fuss as possible uh, in that you know, there, there's, there's often a, a, at the start of that process just everybody sort of restating you know, what's going on, uh, what's been done so far, can we come to some sort of resolution? Um, and, and then you know, depending on how that goes, that can pro, uh, progress through that, that process um, where the, I guess the final sort of stage is uh, that determination that's made by the external ombudsman. Yep. Now you mentioned um, financial firm a couple of times there, is is this scenario a bit like uh, ASIC with the, with the Corps Act, they regulate corporations or firms rather than the advice p- provider that we've seen uh, as the terminology used for, say, the tax practitioner board or the or, or for SIA? Uh, yes, I guess in, in a way. So uh, uh, to bring a dispute to AFCA, um, the, the dispute has to be with a member of AFCA. Um, you can't complain to AFCA about a firm that's not a member. Um, uh, now, uh, effectively, all financial services license you know, license holders or their representatives are required in the Corporations Act to be a member of AFCA. Um, but of course, uh, there are also, uh, for example, uh, you know, mortgage brokers are required to be members of AFCA as well. So it's 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 wider than just that sort of financial planning or financial product manufacturing part that we live in. Yep. And there's been some conversation in the press recently um, about the the actual amount of complaints that come from financial advisors versus other areas of finance. Um, and you mentioned mortgage brokers and, and a lot of other finance areas that are involved. Um, what, what are you seeing in that space with regard to the, you know, the low levels of financial planners being um, dragged in? Yeah. So I, I guess the, the, the parts that I play in terms of as a panel member uh, and then even just reviewing those determinations, I tend to focus on that financial planning side. So I don't necessarily see that wider picture, but certainly you know, um, banking disputes go to AFCA. So um, you know, while not everybody will necessarily have a financial planner, let alone a dispute with a financial planner, nearly everybody will have you know, a bank account 
potentially a loan of, of some sort. So yeah, there, there are a lot of other sort of issues that they're, they're dealing with, um, which then sort of follows through to, um, yes, financial planning is certainly not the biggest generator of disputes in, in what they handle. And does the is the disputes generally because of a financial loss? Is that got to be? Is that the one of the key um, requirements? Look, I, I think there's two parts to that. Is people probably don't go through that compliance process if there isn't some sort of uh, you know, loss there. So, so yeah, that that probably influences it. Um, and and certainly the the role of you know, that dispute resolution is it is it is about put, I guess putting the client in the position they should have been. Uh, so it's it's more of a say a, a compensatory function rather than a sort of discipline or professional practice type function. So um, so yes, if if somebody has potentially done the wrong thing, you know that, that they haven't conducted themselves in the way that they should, but there has not been a resulting loss to the client, then AFCA is not really where that's going to play out. That's more where. Things like the obviously it's not finalised the structure just yet, but your single disciplinary body um, with the Financial Planning Association, their conduct review commission. It's less about that you know, compensating the client or putting the client where they should be, and more about well, you know, actually was this appropriate conduct, and you know what what needs to happen if it if it hasn't been to you know, ensure that there there isn't conti- continuing poor conduct. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. And we'll get uh, we'll get into a little bit more of that um, short, uh, shortly. I want to ask you about the single disciplinary body. Uh, but before we do that, obviously, with your work as a panel member um, there with with Africa, uh, and also that sort of led you into reviewing a lot of the determinations that have been made. Tell us about the papers that you write. Um, yeah. So it it actually doesn't so much come out of the the work as a panel member as um, for the the textbook I've been working on. Um, yeah. Part of that, so uh, that that's about uh, ethics and professional practice in financial planning, and, and very much sort of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, focusing a, a lot on uh, some of the facier reforms, but also the other things. So things like that sort of discipline and, and compensation type system around that. Now, part of that was I, I there's effectively a chapter in that where. You know, we're saying, well, what what can we learn through the decisions that have been made in the past? And and this is one of the things that's you know, been said with a lot of the Facier Code of Ethics is because it's new. You know, people are saying, well, how does this apply to you know actual you know real life scenarios? And and Facier the body has sort of put out some case studies and guidance around that. Um, but what we have with you know, AFCA is a lot of published determinations where you know they're they're effectively case studies. This is what ha- happened. This is what was found about whether it was good practice or or not. Um, so so it's really just uh, I guess going through reading those and trying to draw those lessons out because you know, we can all learn from experience and you know, as we get more experience, it would be terrible if we weren't learning something along the way. Um, but particularly around some of these things, it's good to learn from the experience of others uh, rather than you know. Just having to learn yourself through you know, mistakes that have been made. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And I want to get into some of these decision conversations and the and the, and the work that you do with publishing these and, and providing some commentary around them. But just before we did, you mentioned the book there, uh, the book you've been writing. You sort of talked about that in the in the previous podcast we did with with you. Um, tell us about the book, uh, how people can get hold of it, um, and and what it's sort of about. Yeah, so um, it's somewhat in the hands of the publisher at the moment. So I don't know the exact date, uh, but uh, I have some hopes that by the time this goes to air, it may actually be published. So the publisher is LexisNexis. Um, they have an online store. So the title is uh, Ethics in Professional Practice. And I think if you sort of just Google that with LexisNexis or you can go to their website and start sort of you know, looking through the financial planning category, um, yeah, that, that one is there. And available, so they're certainly they're taking pre-orders now, um, and yeah, hopefully not too far away from um, those actually being sort of printed and delivered. Fantastic! And um, uh, michaelmiller.help forward slash book is a uh, URL where you can uh, put a pre-order in for that as well. 
Yes, yeah. Well, that, that's that's just uh, me sort of collecting a list that when it is available, I can um, send those details through. Fantastic. Now, um, just while we're on michaelmiller.help, tell us about that brand. Yeah, well, it's, it's not so much a brand as just a sort of website I set up for, um, you know, things like publishing, uh, you know, the, these sort of writing up these decisions. Um, and, you know, if you sort of have a marketing campaign where you need to direct somebody to a, you know, a specific sort of page about that, that that's somewhere that I can put that up. Yeah, I think this is actually a really interesting um, part of what uh, what planners around the country can be doing is creating their own brand, um, having a having a, a space or a website where you can put uh, individual type information or accreditation that may or may not be necessarily linked to the the business that you're in or the existing business that you're in now. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a good idea, and if uh, if anybody wants to check that out, um, jump on uh, michaelmiller.help. I think it's a it's a great place to to have a look at something that of what somebody's done uh, that may help you. Now let's get into these uh, these decision papers and these determination papers that you write. Um, I'm looking at one that talks about, uh, I don't know if it's uh, published yet or it probably will be by the time this goes out, but it talks about the uh, the Q4 decisions that were made in 2021. Let's, uh, let's dive into it. Tell us what you uh, tell us what you're seeing uh, in this space because I think uh, a lot of it was reflective of the last sort of 12 months where everybody was sort of, uh, do they go to cash? Do they do they get out of cash? All those types of conversations. Yeah, that, that's right. So, um, what that particular one is looking at is the decisions from effectively first of April two thousand and twenty one through to thirtieth of June. Uh, so, I'm I'm basically doing this every quarter now. Uh, and and what's what's been interesting there is um, that probably starting to see some of the complaints that were. Uh, you know, generated by you know, issues that came out of that very sharp market downturn um, from the first COVID lockdown, which was sort of you know, around about April 2020. Um, because once again, sort of thinking about that process is uh, when something like that happens, uh, which might generate um, you know, things that might, may have uh, caused a loss or a perceived loss for the, the client, and um, they need to see that result. They sort of have to go through, you know, make a complaint to you know, a financial firm, uh, and, and you know, if that's not resolved, that starts going through those AFCA processes. And, and once again, what I'm looking at is the determination. So they're often at the end of that process. So there is there, there's a, a reasonable sort of time lag that it's really, you know, that sort of twelve to fifteen months after that substantial market downturn that you're starting to see the determinations that reflect that. What I thought was interesting is as, as we started to sort of look at these determinations was just thinking about, um, I, I guess, my own uh, practice and experience where you know, I, I really sort of started advising sort of right, right I, I described right into the teeth of the, the global financial crisis and the downturn that came with that in, in share markets. Um, but actually once we were through, sort of through that, uh, and I've been running my own practice for sort of nine, maybe coming up to 10 years now. Um, you know, so in that period that I've been running my own practice, so you're responsible for not just my advice, but the whole sort of operation there, prior to COVID, we really didn't have much of a downturn. Uh, you know, there were a couple of sort of flat spots and um, yeah, a, a few sort of periods where if you picked a particular sort of six or 12 months, you might have seen a negative return. But for the most part, diversified portfolios were uh, just up. So you didn't get these, uh, certainly these moments of negative returns, but I think in particular of those really um, you know, sharp downturns of, of which you know, COVID was similar in scale to the global financial crisis and, and the, the drawdowns on markets, but it was... Uh, you know, completely different and, and very, very quick, both on the way down and on the way back up uh, compared to the global financial crisis, which was actually much more extended uh, in time by comparison. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, this, this leads to the, the conversations that you've had with your clients in, in the past and, uh, for, for the, and the difference between planners who have been through those conversations with clients the first time or the or the second time to be able to then uh, reapply those types of conversations versus planners who haven't had those conversations yet. 
Oh, absolutely. I think when you get those moments, um, there's there's a big difference. You know, how much, maybe not so much of you know, the planner's experience, but even the I guess the pre work you've done with the clients to sort of say, hey, you know, at some point this is going to come, um, and and this is you know this is sort of what it's going to feel like, and and let's make sure we're sort of set up for that. Um, yeah, it's. I think you do see a bit of difference in clients, partially reflecting, as I said, what pre-work you've done, also what prior experiences they've had and decisions they've made in the past as well. Yeah, so understanding the importance of that pre-work conversations, setting setting or lining up for the prospect of when the next market downturn is. We don't know when it is, but there will be one at some point. Uh, and during that time, here is what here is here is what our expectations are. How we'll all behave, um, you know. Keep you know keep the plan on track, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. And do you think that then stems off a lot of these, uh, you know, the, the the go to cash complaint moments that came out of uh, of the last sort of quarter, that April to the June period? Do you think those pre conversations could have had a, a lot to do with you know th- these complaints? I think there's a number of things that you can sort of look at these complaints, and and what I would say is actually, for the for the most part, the complaints have been found, uh, I guess, in favour of the financial firm or the financial planners, so that they they have done the right thing in terms of their conduct. Um, but I I think what it's sort of highlighted is probably looking more at. Um, well, okay, the client has you know, these complaints exist because the clients are unhappy with the results of what has happened, uh, and you know, what are the things that we could you know, potentially do in advance to, um, you know, I guess, build that that awareness and understanding of, I guess, even the reasons, for example, that um, you know, a financial planner will, for the most part, never ever say, you know, you should go to cash because of a. Um, a a change in markets or a downturn in markets and, and things like that. Um, yeah, what, what are the things we could do to actually explain that you know, sort of in the good times so that we could, I guess, draw on that in, in the bad times? Yep. Now, a lot of these, um, it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of complaint because it, to me it sort of spans out over time, right? You mentioned sort of the 12 to 15 months uh, and, of course, a lot happened in that 12 to 15 month period, obviously, you know, markets dropped substantially, people got upset and nervous and worried. Um, you know, we know that people make decisions emotionally uh, and often, you know, um, you know, if they'd wanted to go to cash prior to that, they were going to be extremely upset that they hadn't got uh, moved to cash before that. Um, but then obviously hindsight's a wonderful thing to look back on and to be able to say, well, you know, if you'd stuck, if you'd, you know, done, if you'd followed the advice, um, you know, we'd, you're going to be in a better position now than you were, you know, prior to the, the downturn. But um, how, how much of this is around really emotive and emotional um, factors versus logical and practical factors when it comes to the d- determinations? Because, I mean, as I said, people make decisions emotionally, not necessarily logically. Yeah, so I think that's where you know, the determinations are you know, very much follow that uh, you know, logical sort of you know, thought pattern, um, whereas the the actions and the realities of that moment and perhaps the client perception is, as you said, extremely emotive. And and so that's where I think you know, it's looking at that that disconnect where you know, the the determinations are saying the the financial planner largely did what they should have. Um, but also at the same time, the outcome for the client you know, has been one that you know, we would all uh, you know, do anything we possibly could in our power to avoid the client doing that. You know, it's um, obviously if there's a complaint made against you, it's a, it's a hugely stressful time for a financial planner, uh, and somewhat relieving if that is resolved in a way that you, know, you haven't been found you know, responsible for that that poor outcome. But if you step aside from that for a moment, uh, every single financial planner would just prefer that there wasn't the poor outcome for there to be a dispute about who was responsible for that. Um, And and that's where I think we we can uh, draw some some sort of lessons and and perhaps even build some better processes uh, into our practice so that... um, You'll probably never get rid of these uh, sort of disputes completely, um, but maybe we can minimise that, uh, you know, that incidence of a, a poor outcome for clients or these sort of 
you know, misunderstandings uh, and and the like there. Yep. Yeah. You know, I think some some of these some of these disputes have come from um, that a, a client has come in with a portfolio and said, "Hey, I'm concerned about this market falling, you know, quite a lot." Uh, and and the financial planner has, as we said, done what logically they should is the correct advice and said, "Hey." We're going to realise a large loss if we sort of cash out now. We need to stay the course, all of which is very, very good advice. Um, but as markets have continued to fall, you know, it's effectively gotten past that point, uh, that you know, risk tolerance point for the client, and they've you know, they've made the call to cash out. Uh, and and in some of these examples, you know, they have cashed out at a lower point than when they first started expressing that concern to their planner. And, and, and that's what's behind a lot of these disputes um, is it then becomes quite, uh, well, it becomes disputed at what point did it move from a client concern to a client instruction? Um, yep. the, and and that's, that tends to be what sort of drives these, these disputes. Yep. So tell us about some of these wall stories because there's a few of them that have come out of this in this quarter. Um, let's get into some of these because I, I love the way that you approach this from the point of view of you know what how can we be, be better you know better at our jobs better planners better advisors from the outcome of these by by looking at these determinations and working out what could have been done to to um, cut it off. Um, tell us about some of these these exact cases that we've got, we've got here. Yeah, so um, there, there was one determination, uh, and you can look all these up on the AFCA website, I mean, that's where I get them from. Um, so the number for this one was 746832. Um, and now, now, this is probably more to do with, say, some of the the actions before the downturn, um, because you know, the, there had been some discussions with the, uh, between client and planner saying, hey, look, um, you know, maybe I want to reduce my risk profile, and this was around sort of August 2019. So that probably puts us say, you know, six, seven, or eight months before you know, markets really started uh, fall- falling quite severely. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, um, you know, the dispute has been well. Hold on, I said you know, from the client's perspective, back in August 2019, I was sort of saying we should be more defensive. Um, you know, that hasn't happened. And now we've gone into this severe downturn. They've cashed out in March 2020. Uh, and, and in this case, they, they probably had a fairly sizable portfolio because the the resulting loss or, or the, the, I guess, the difference between moving to cash in August 2019 and moving to cash in March 2020 was $200,000, so a substantial amount of money. Um, now, in this instance, that, that firm had... Uh, you know, they were found to have done the right thing um, in that there certainly was these indications that the client may wish to reconsider their risk profile, but they'd they'd made quite substantial efforts to, you know, I guess, address that with their client. Uh, and also, ultimately, the, the client had not responded to, you know, and there was a number of records of advice in, in, in between the August 2019 and the March 2020 that sort of showed that you know, the, the financial planners had you know, been listening to their client they just they hadn't gotten that that information, um, but but certainly, I think it's it's the sort of dispute that you know, once again, if if the record keeping had have been a little bit poorer, if there hadn't been those advice documents issued in the period you know, between, there, there there could have been um, you know, potentially a different outcome because it it might have been more difficult for the planner to have demonstrated that they uh, you know, had done. Uh, what what they um, sort of yeah, should have or, or, or said they would. Um, I, I thought there was there was an interesting sort of sometimes you get these interesting quotes in these determinations. Um, they they asked this question but didn't answer it. Um, but it talks about uh, you know, to what extent should a a planner uh, I guess anticipate the you know, a COVID-19 downturn. So what they've said is, you know, in normal circumstances, an advisor failing to meet his obligations to a client in respect to market-based investments must take responsibility for losses sustained because of market volatility. However, there is a question of whether the impact of COVID-19, a one in a 100 year event on the investments is too remote to be reasonably foreseeable. Um, now, in this case, they go on to say, 
I find that because of the actions of the complainant and his wife, I do not have to resolve this question. Uh, so nice and easy for them to sort of you know, raise a very difficult question and then just say, look, in this case, um, nobody needs to work it out. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I read that and I guess one, one sort of, say, disagreement I, I had with that is, is certainly you might say COVID uh, is a one in 100 year event. Uh, I think we would all certainly like to hope so, that it's not a yes. um, <laughs> as frequently repeated. Um, uh, but uh, I certainly think in practice, you know, a severe market downturn, we should not be approaching the possibility of that like a one in 100 year event. Um, you know, I think even in you know, recent history, you know, the, the last 20 years is we've seen, you know, they've all been slightly different Um uh, from each other, but in the last 20 years, we've obviously seen the COVID downturn, but we saw the global financial crisis, which was a little bit more, you know, sort of banking and financial system inspired. You know, we've also seen the bursting of the dot-com bubble, which was, you know, to do with the specific technology sectors. So um, I don't think we should be approaching our planning like these things don't ever happen. Um, we can, uh, I don't think that people can anticipate the timing um, but I, I think that with some sort of you know, reasonable frequency, we should be expecting that um, yeah, that will happen. So, so that's probably my... Uh, I don't think you could excuse conduct uh, you know, just by saying, well, you know, COVID itself was one in 100 years, who would ever see it coming? Um, because we're talking really more about just the impact of a severe and sharp market downturn. Yep, and uh, and uh, we've always been taught that there are market cycles, and you know any and there's there's no real number, but you know eight to twelve years is sort of a, a you know very as a moment that's been talked about. So uh, it, it, you're absolutely right, you know, expecting that and uh, and lining your clients up to uh, anticipate that, I guess, is the key. Yeah, that that's right. Yeah, there there, there was another determination which was really that there was a lot sort of going in this one, but um, it's number seven hundred. Uh, 761581. Um, in this case, it just highlighted that uh, you know, a client had completed a risk prof profile questionnaire in the past, in about 2018. Uh, in 2019, um, you know, the, uh, the, the client sort of didn't want to complete a new questionnaire, so the financial planner, they just really sort of reaffirmed that, that risk profile that was completed in the past. Um, and you know, that, that was seen to be, that that was an appropriate uh, sort of process. And, and I would say that reflects what I've seen from, you know, most licensees tend to have some sort of policy where they say, look, you don't need to do this every year. Um, but, you know, they, they might have a threshold on that. They might say, but after three years, you probably should, or maybe it's five years. Um, I guess also reflecting on our own practice, you know, we might think about, well, th there's some time, time factors that are quite common in, um, you know, saying you can't use the the same sort of questionnaire or profile without redoing it after five years, but also what are some of the events that might, uh, you know, trigger that even if you're still within your three or five year time period is it, you know, might retirement be a trigger, uh, you know, might divorce or, uh, you know, inheriting new money. You know, what, what are those uh, you know, events that we might say, okay, I know I've done this in the past and maybe it was reasonably recently, but circumstances are different in a way we didn't anticipate. We should go back and do that again. Yep, yep. And I think uh, with the risk profiling, it can get a bit blasé from time to time, but you mentioned risk tolerance previously. Aren't com completely understanding what their client's risk tolerance is and understanding at what point they're going to completely freak out and want to switch to cash? Yeah, that, that that's right. I, I think um, that it's... It's very important because ultimately you know, we are advisors, um, but the client is in the driving seat. Uh, so, so one thing that I think is very important is recognizing that uh, it's the client's risk tolerance that is more important than what our personal risk tolerance might be because it's probably fair to say that on average, financial planners have a higher risk tolerance uh, than you know, the, the wider public uh, because we've had you know, a combination of we certainly had a lot of uh, you know, education along the way, which shows you know, the value of you know, holding through thick and thin. Um, 
but we've also just had a, you know, a remarkable amount of exposure because even if we're actually you know, not doing any investing ourselves, we're just seeing that in real time happening with our clients. So you just, you, know, you, you actually, you sort of build up a very thick skin in terms of risk, risk tolerance that it then becomes incumbent on us to, to realize that the client has not had the same experience, so they may not have the same tolerance. Yeah, that uh, understanding our own bias is an interesting is an interesting point of view, isn't it? Understanding that our tolerance, uh, based on our experience, is is actually a bias, and to be able to make sure that we're um, either helping the client through it or, or understanding what theirs is. That's right. Um, now, just on there's because there's, there's a number of determinations, obviously, with markets falling and people wanting to switch to cash. Um, generally, as we said before, for emotional reasons. Uh, but tell us about uh, like a lot of these determinations were in favour the of the advisors, weren't they? Yes, yeah, there, uh, there, there hasn't been too many. That, like, there was really only sort of two or three that really reflected on that in that quarter. I'd hazard a guess that when it comes time to do the next quarter, there's probably going to be a few more that sort of look at that um, particular topic as well. Yeah, I feel like there'll be, there's going to be a few more that refer to the um, you know the the early release of superannuation money's taken and the and the possible losses that could incur with that. Yeah, look, I think and and this probably doesn't come into the ones that I look at um, because mostly they would have actually been unadvised. So, but you're right, there's potentially um, if you look at disputes with superannuation trustees, uh, I, I think potentially. Uh, a lot there and a lot to do with the timing of processing because you know at, at that point in time um, you know whether a withdrawal was uh, uh, you know, undertaken on a Tuesday or a Friday yeah there, there, there were times during that downturn where that's an eight or a ten percent difference uh, in in the value of the portfolio over the course of three days uh, and that's you know, these are the sorts of things that really generate these disputes. Just yep. in that case, probably less frequently with financial advisors, more more so with the superannuation trustees themselves. Yeah, no doubt there was a bit of fear and panic. Um, apart from the switch to cash conversations, what else did we see in this quarter? Look, I, I think what one that I thought was really interesting, more so from a long long term perspective, is um, it was actually in relation to somebody who'd. Um, uh, taken out an equity release type product, um, uh, so so like a reverse mortgage, um, and the dispute was actually with the um, the reverse mortgage provider. Um, the now what what had happened in in that case is they'd basically taken out a reverse mortgage with a long term fixed rate, but they'd done this uh, you know, in the sort of I don't remember the exact timing, but it was probably a year or so prior to. The global financial crisis. Now, um, you know that's when interest rates had been, you know, steadily increasing. You know, sort of a, a quarter of a percent, or um, you know, every sort of month and things like that. Like, so for probably you know the course of two or three years, you know, rates were just going up, going up, and people's great fear then was, oh my gosh, these rates are just going to keep increasing. Um, so, so they'd actually um, yeah, taken out this reverse mortgage and effectively fixed the rate. Um, so at the time there, it was probably at something like eight or nine percent. What we've subsequently seen you know, fr- from the financial crisis and then beyond is just interest rates have absolutely sort of you know, fallen through the f- floor. Um, so there, there's been a big differential rate uh, locked in there. Um, what what was interesting is is once again, yeah, a really terrible outcome for the individual, um, uh, but. The determination sort of reflected that the um, you know, this reverse mortgage provider they really followed all the steps they should have uh, to you know warn about the risks and, and things like that um, and and this sort of determination I think would be very instructive um, if financial planners were more involved in um, you know things like equity release products but also. Um, you know, the the pension loan scheme, which is somewhat like a reverse mortgage, um, you know, was quite expanded. Um, I think that that's something that, in the, I don't know the timeframes, you know, maybe the medium term, and um, financial planners will be much more involved with. I certainly think they should, uh, because what these decisions really are are retirement planning, 
uh, and often you know, people who are looking at these sorts of equity releases um, are also in receipt of age pension type benefits and potentially you know, moving into aged care. So there's a lot of interaction with the social security system. Um, there's a big issue right now that most of these products sort of sit under the credit licensing regime where you know, most financial planners don't actually have the authorization to provide advice. Uh, that's something that I think that um, it would be great for that to be shifted because I think that because of the, the retirement planning and social security aspects, um, you really do need financial advice to go with it. Um, but yeah, once again, you're able to see from a very extreme case where a client has had a very poor outcome but the yeah, AFCA as the body has looked at, you know, the outcome was poor, but the conduct was in this case, you know, spot on. They they gave, you know, they did what they should have to investigate that. So, you know, if we get to the stage where actually, you know, we are able to provide advice on these types of decisions under the licensing system, um, it's a really good indicator for then, well, what are the steps and, and how thorough do we need to be? Because particularly in this space, they're typically very large and very irreversible decisions. Um, so, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, it's interesting uh, just on that, uh, um, that a lot of planners can't provide advice on it, as you said, because they're not uh, accredited to or their licensees won't let them provide advice on it. Um, and it kind of feels to me like it's a, it's a zone where – um, there's a lot of advice warnings, not necessarily financial product advice, but a lot of, uh, you know, strategy type conversations should be had and warnings should be had um, outside of the product. Yeah, look, I, I think it's something that, uh, and yeah, coming back to uh, the global financial crisis and storm uh, is yeah, margin lending used to be regulated as a credit product uh, and was actually brought into that financial products regime Um because it was seen as you know, more tied to financial advice than it was to credit advice. Uh, I think long-term, yeah, there, there possibly needs to be some sort of legislative change or things like that. I, I think around these equity release type products and, and probably particularly that, that pension loan scheme, which used to be quite narrow in its application, but the government has changed the law to really expand that. Um, yeah, I, I think there is a process for us to be going and saying, hey, we think we should be providing advice on this. We would like to help people with this. Um, but yeah, he, he's, here's the reasons why. Like I, I think those you know, licensees have been quite sensible under the current you know, rules to say, no, you can't do that because yeah, it doesn't line up. So what we need to do is sort of say, hey, you know, here's the reasons we think it's a good idea that we should be involved and here's what we need you to change so that we can do that. Yep. Fantastic. Now, you've got a little section at the end of your report called Odds and Ends. Let's quickly uh, dive through some of those uh, different yeah, look, things. Yeah, I think this is where sometimes uh, sometimes it's just uh, maybe interesting or, or, or a little bit funny or just topical but not much. Um, yeah, there was one determination. You know, we've seen you know, people losing money in um, you know, cryptocurrency scams, so um, not just because that particular currency has actually uh, you know, performed poorly. It's just been a fraud uh, and... Um, you know, when people have lost a lot of money, they'll they'll quite sort of naturally try just about anything, uh, and often they're trying to say the bank that you know transferred the money, often overseas in large amounts, uh, should be responsible. There's been a couple of decisions along the way which basically say you know that's not a duty that a bank you know really has. Um, so there was one there. Um, there there was a, one around recontribution strategies. Uh, which yeah, just because this is something that doesn't necessarily get examined a lot, you know, actually said, look, it wasn't poor advice that a recontribution strategy was done because it was you know, reasonably likely in the circumstances here that um, you know, the superannuation would have been exhausted in the superannuant's lifetime, you know, not with substantial sums passed to non-dependents. Um, so, yeah, I... You just don't get that sort of in writing a lot of the time, so it was inter interesting to see that. Um, there, there was a, a, a decision that came out of uh, one of the courts in Queensland, um, HAP2 and, and Bankier. Um, what that sort of established is that as financial planners, we have a very, very broad duty to warn clients about the risks of what they're doing. Uh, and, and I think what was a little bit uh, perhaps eye-opening about that decision um, was that duty was probably found to exist 
quite extensively beyond the scope you know, of the engagement with the client. Um, in that particular case, the, you know, the the engagement with the advisor was more to do with uh, you know, investing some funds. Um, what the client did that lost some money was more sort of starting their own private business. Um, the and the advisor was found to have a responsibility in that particular set of circumstances to have you know, more comprehensively warned the client of the risks of what they were doing. Um, there's a, a decision here where that's probably just come back a little bit in that they, they've uh, you know, said, look, you have a duty to warn clients about risks of what they're doing, but um, if that client is also experienced in that particular area, so in this dispute it was about property investments, um, it's reasonable to not sort of have to give them every sort of warning under the sun that you, you can assume that they actually have some experience that they can draw on themselves. Uh, and then a final one, um, look, I think, I don't think anybody would find this surprising. I can't believe they actually did it, but somebody who uh, issued a, a statement of advice, I think it was in something around 2006 or maybe 2007, uh, and was providing advice with a record of advice uh, 10 years after that, uh, with no sort of advice in between, that's definitely, a, there's a lot of grey area sometimes in the rules about, you know, what's an SOA and what's an ROA. Um, I don't think there's any grey about a 10-year uh, differential uh, between the two. Um, but, you know, somebody tried. Yeah, yeah, you're right there. You know, sometimes those finer things give you the the, the best learnings. Uh, I think that one you're right, you know, doing an ROA 10 years after the SOA and referring to the SOA is, is not uh, not exactly uh, best practice. Uh, no, no real learnings with that one, I don't think. Just uh, just uh, highlighting that uh, that's, uh, of course, crazy. Michael, thanks so much for coming on and talking about the paper. <laughs> now, you do these every quarter, which is fantastic. Um, tell us about uh, where people can go to find them. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I'm typically, uh, I guess I, I publish them on um, yeah, my, my website, so the michaelmiller.help um, uh, there. Uh, and then the two places I typically share them um, is just myself through uh, LinkedIn. Uh, but then where the majority of people probably see it uh, is I typically post those on uh, XY uh, as, as well, just as a bit of a post there. Yeah, fantastic. And they get a fantastic response. The XY community uh, looks, I think they look forward to them now, but they certainly uh, love interacting and reading and, and having, starting conversations and threads of conversations about each one. So very much appreciate it, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again and, and um, telling us all about that. No problem. Well, we look, we look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. I'll, uh, I'll keep reading the determinations. Mm-hmm.